the understanding that um, I think so helpful is that a bodhisattva is an awakening being, or actually a full realized bodhisattva is an awakened being, awakened because the bodhisattva realizes and trusts the very essence of being, that wisdom and compassion which is our nature. And that we're all awakening bodhisattvas, that we go around with an idea of being something less. But that's what's going on here. We are beings that are coming as we pay attention more and more to recognize that basic wakefulness and tenderness, which really is who we are. I like this story um, told by Kosho Uchiyama Roshi, and I'll share it with you. Behind a temple there was a field where there were many squashes growing on a vine. One day a fight broke out among them, and the squashes broke up into two groups and made a big racket shouting at one another. The head priest heard the uproar, and going out to see what was going on, found the squashes quarreling. In his booming voice, the priest scolded them. He said, hey, squashes, what are you doing out there fighting? Everybody, meditate. You meditate right now. The priest taught them how to meditate. Now fold your legs like this. And I'm trying to imagine these squash folding their legs. Okay, fold your legs like this and sit up and straighten your back and neck. And while the squashes were meditating in the way the priest had taught them, their anger subsided and they settled down. Then the priest quietly said, Everyone, please put your hand on top of your head. And when the squashes felt the tops of their heads, they found some weird string attached there, and it turned out to be a vine that connected them all together. Hey, this is really strange, the squashes said. (laughs) Here, we've been arguing, when actually we're all tied together and living just one life. What a mistake. It's just as the priest said, and then after that, the squashes all got along with each other quite well. <laughs> so I thought this could help us be emissaries for world peace. We'll teach everyone to, you know. <laughs> but really, if a squash can do it, so can we. <laughs> and there's that sense that, you know, in the inner stillness that the squashes came to through sitting quietly together, it really allowed them to recognize their interconnectedness. And sometimes the word connectedness itself, you know, what does that really mean? And I think we can understand it in the simplicity of when we really pay attention, we belong to awareness. Awareness is our essence. And that's for all of us. And these lives, these temporary forms, all made of the same elements, all with this rigged to have similar moods given certain circumstances, all facing loss, all with pain and pleasure, absolutely part of our part of our nature, and then the reactions that create suffering, we're all the same. When we pay deep attention, what is revealed is our humanness, the truth of this conditioning, and also the sacred, that attention, that awareness that really is our source. When we pay attention to each other, that's what we experience. When we really pay attention. So as we near the end of a retreat, I really love spending some time exploring 
perhaps the most compelling question to many of us, which is how can we take what what reveals itself when we pay attention, this quality of connectedness and the care that naturally arises and really infuse our relationships with it? How can we live that out in our relationships with each other? Many of you know the Relka line, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may never complete the last one, but I give myself to it. So we open the field of attention in this way, you know, to sense this belonging to widening circles. And we do it at the end of the retreat, and we also, as you know, have done it each night when we sense that we've been practicing, but our efforts are not to liberate a separate self. It might seem that way in our story, but really our effort is to wake up. And as we wake up, we wake up to sense our belonging and there's a natural care to be of benefit to others. It's natural. So this is the Bodhisattva path, the the sweetness of that. And I, I noticed in interviews today that whenever there had been a sense of really paying attention within, there was a tenderizing that happened that then extended naturally to the other people that were perhaps involved in the situation. And when it's not like that, when we're cut off, we suffer. Story by Margaret Stevens. There was a man who died and found himself in a beautiful place surrounded by every conceivable comfort. A white-jacketed man came to him and said, You may have anything you choose, any food, any pleasure, any kind of entertainment. The man was delighted, and for days he sampled all the delicacies and experiences of which he had dreamed on earth. But one day he grew bored with it all, and calling an attendant to him, he said, I'm tired of all this. I need something to do. I'd like to be able to help out in some way. What can you offer me? The attendant sadly shook his head and replied, I'm sorry, sir, that's the one thing we can't do for you. There's no way for you to be of help here. To which the man answered, that's a fine thing. I might as well be in hell. The attendant said softly, where do you think you are? The Buddha's way of describing it, suffering or that kind of hell, is really living identified as a separate self, living in that perception, having that perception of separateness, and then that whole swirl of deficiency and clinging and resisting that we've been talking about these days of retreat that comes out of that perception. And we know it here when we're suffering. What's really going on? We can sense the occupation with self. Every time we're suffering, there's this kind of a centralizing into self, these wants, these fears. And we notice how the more uncomfortable we are, the more afraid we are, the more there's a sense of separateness. And my story and my drama just fills the whole universe. We're at war with how it is inside us. And there's a war in some way with the life around us, whether we're feeling separated or rejected, are oppressed or offended, are just the judgments. 
In contrast, and this I know also from speaking with so many here, the moments of freedom are when we're not feeling centralized and contracted around some sense of a solid entity. There's more of a a kind of a presence with, not clinging, open. Often there's a sense of the, the kindnesses that are that are being exchanged between one another, not in words, not in looks, but just in the sense of the consideration and kind of presence we've been offering each other. We feel good then. The Bodhisattva's path is cultivating of this kind of a presence, this non-clinging and the care, is guided and energized by aspiration. This has been a theme of the retreat for a reason, which is that when we connect with what matters to us, it completely energizes, guides, and shapes our experience. I think of aspiration kind of as a bud's urge to flower. It's not that we're aspiring for something other than what's here. We're really aspiring for our innate capacity to be realized. We're aspiring for what is our nature. There's a circularity to aspiration when it's pure and true. We notice that these retreats, and I I suspect many of you have found this, that the more you touch what you cherish, the realness, the sense of, of what you really know is who you are, that tenderness, that wakefulness, the more profound the aspiration is to continue to inhabit that, to recognize that. So on the bodhisattva path, aspiration is a formal practice. It's, it's very much built into the, the tradition that we begin a sitting or a retreat or any situation that we can remember to begin with by reflecting and contemplating on what matters. I mean, what really matters now? You can, as you sit and listen tonight, even at this this juncture right now, just sense for yourself, and you might just let your attention go inward, what is your aspiration for listening tonight, for being in this talk, in this particular setting? And take some moments to ask that question and drop in in a very genuine way to what's true for you. What's the possibility that you might open to? What is it you really care about this evening that you'd like to touch? experience. And can recognizing this guide you in how you're present? You can open your eyes if you'd like. In uh, Traditionally, the Bodhisattva's aspiration takes has kind of two components. And while they really form one aspiration, I think it's really useful to reflect on them separately, and I'd like to do that today in a 
tonight in a, in a very kind of immediate way. And the first part of the Bodhisattva's aspiration is, may all circumstances serve to awaken wisdom and compassion. Whatever's happening, may this serve to awaken wisdom and compassion. And the second part, the more well-known part is, and may this life be of benefit to all beings. There's different language for it, but the thrust is, may this life, may my efforts, may my moments be of benefit. So let's take the first part. Just this reflection on, may all circumstances, whatever is happening, the difficulties, the beauty, may this serve wisdom and compassion, the awakening. And I know for me that, um, especially when I hit a wall in my life, when things are really, really hard, I'm anticipating major loss, that's usually when it is, that it almost that I, it throws me into that aspiration. It's like, this is so bad, may it serve something? <laughs> is that feeling? But actually what's underneath that, that has a little bit of a desperate kind of edge, but what's underneath it is an intuition that the very nature of suffering, if I can pay attention, it's like the fire and the heat that actually creates a diamond, the very nature of suffering when we pay attention is to awaken us to the very source of who we are, if we pay attention. So when I say that aspiration myself, may this please, please serve awakening, it actually mobilizes me, it directs my attention so that I actually have the energy to pay attention. It's interesting to me that the Pali word viriya, V-I-R-I-Y-A, it means effort. But one of the translations, which I think is really valuable for Varia, is heart or courage. That what really our effort is, is a quality of, of spirit, or of, it's kind of a vital force or energy that comes from a kind of bravery to face obstacles without shrinking from them. That really this is the path of the Bodhisattva. It's a very courageous path. Because the given is that if we are going to put aside our distractions and really face what's here, it's challenging. Now the understanding is that there's a wise way of doing that and it's not always compassionate or valuable to um, completely lean into traumatic fear, for instance. And yet the underlying intention can still be this aspiration May these circumstances serve awakening. May I bring this quality of varia, of heart and of courage, to not pull back, to not pull away. The challenge, what happens to us, you can see it here. I mentioned the other night, it's kind of like we need lag time because we get locked into reactivity and we forget the possibility of the moment. When we first get hit up by strong physical pain or discomfort, when we first sense that surge of anxiety that something's going to go wrong, when we first feel insulted or offended, we don't immediately go, oh, may this serve to awaken. That just doesn't happen for most of us. (laughs) Usually, (laughs) 
we go, oh shit, you know, on some level. <laughs> we don't like it and we wish it away. And we have a whole, or each have our own strategies for getting rid of it. Bottom line is, we think something's wrong. I think Philip said it beautifully the other night when he talked about suffering, is that we, have, we are habituated to thinking when things are difficult that it's a mistake in some way. It shouldn't be that way. One friend of mine described that when he's sick, sometimes it takes him hours to realize that he's thinking it shouldn't be this way. It just is what it is. Yesterday it was raining, today or the day before. These last two days it's been sunny. It just is. So we lock into something's wrong, usually something's wrong with me, and it obscures the possibility of awakening. In those moments when we're reactive, we are identified with a small self that's oppressed, that's victimized, and that's struggling. Sometimes it's just that vague struggle to get through the day. Still, there's a sense that something's wrong. So what's happened this week is that we begin, as we deepen our attention, to notice our strategies when we think something's wrong to get away from pain and discomfort. And it's really helpful to see them. One of our strategies, as Philip described last night, is so clarifying, is that we set these expectations. We're trying to fix things or make things a certain way. We're trying to get things under control, basically. John O'Donohue says, we manage our life so powerfully so as to cover over this mystery that we're involved with. But we don't really want the mystery when it's uncomfortable. So we have these different strategies. Mostly, we keep spinning these endless stories about what we expect, what we don't want, how we're going to make it different. We do a lot of trying to move around to make things better in our minds and our bodies. And we do a lot of blaming. We aim a lot of blame. We aim it at God in general, how the world is, or at our own selves, or at each other. Some of you might remember this. A dedicated wife had spent her lifetime taking care of her husband, and now he had been slipping in and out of a coma for several days, yet she stayed by his bedside every day. When he came to his senses, he motioned for her to come near him. As she sat by him, he said, Do you know what? You have been with me all through the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you gave me support. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. Do you know what? What, dear, she asked gently. I think you bring me bad luck. We ward off other people's suffering, too. We use the same strategies in a way that we, it's, it's hard to be with, you know? You can sense your reaction to a person is, I don't want to be with that. It's usually not wanting to be with their suffering, their fear, their hurt. So we put it at a distance, and again, we, we do that kind of blaming, in some way making, making them an other that, that we don't really have to relate to. My mother, um, right before I left for retreat, called me. She knows that I kind of scan around for 
good cartoons, etc. I pay for them <laughs> when anybody sends them to me. Okay, a New Yorker. There's a man and a woman, and they're faced off defiantly, and he's saying to her, yeah, well, the Dalai Lama never had to deal with your whining. (laughs) (laughs) The Dalai Lama has become quite the centerpiece of everything that's very idealized by many people. I talk a lot um, in the Wednesday night groups about how we create an unreal other. Just the way we disconnect from ourselves, our way of kind of armoring is to not take in the subjectiveness, the realness of another person's experience. And it's particularly um, horrifying when we sense how that leads to war. I mean, we can attack, we can bomb, we can decimate countries if we don't really perceive the beings there as real humans. And even close in, we we sent, it's very easy to be so inside our story that we have a kind of a um, two-dimensional figure of another person. And we really don't sense where they're coming from and we don't look closely because we don't want to. This is called projection. My favorite projection story, some of you know, but I'll share it with you because it's so much fun. About a century or two ago, the Pope decided that all the Jews had to leave Rome. Naturally, there's a big uproar from the Jewish community. So the Pope made a deal. He would have a religious debate with a member of the Jewish community. If the Jews won, the Jews could stay. If the Pope won, the Jews would leave. Now, the Jews realized that they had no choice, so they picked a middle-aged man named Moshe to represent them. Now, Moshe asked for one addition to the debate. To make it more interesting, neither side would be allowed to talk. The The Pope agreed. The day of the great debate came, and Moshe and the Pope sat opposite of each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moshe looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope waved his fingers in a circle around his head, and Moshe pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine, and Moshe pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man is too good. The Jews can stay. An hour later, the cardinals were all around the Pope asking him what had happened. The Pope said, well, first I I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was still one God common to both our religions. Then I waved my finger around me to show him that God was all around us. And he responded by pointing to the ground and showing that God was also right here now with us. I pulled out the wine and wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins, and he pulled out the apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? (laughs) Meanwhile, the Jewish community had crowded around Moshe. Well, what happened, they asked. (laughs) Well, said Moshe, first he told me, he said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here, and I told him that not one of us was leaving. (laughs) Then he told me that this whole city would be cleared of Jews, and I let him know we were staying right here. (laughs) Yes, yes, and then, and then asked the crowd. I don't know, said Moshe. He took out his lunch, and I took out mine. When we don't look, when we don't look to see who's there or what's happening, when we don't look inside ourselves, when we ignore what's here, then we create a story about it. And the story usually says, something's wrong with me. 
I'm falling short. Things are going to keep going wrong. When we don't look at another, we very quickly lock them into the enemy. And if not the enemy, an other that really won't care and won't understand. I mentioned the other night the two things we most long for. We want to be seen. We want to be understood and cared for. And yet, if we don't pay deep attention to ourselves and each other, there's a lot of mistrust. I found so much that I, what I love so much about this practice is that just simply by paying attention, if that's all we do as best as we're able, thank you very much, what we need to pay attention to, what really wants our acceptance, what wants to be included, will reveal itself. It has its own timetable. We can't force it and we don't need to. So there's a matter of patience. But if we're willing to pay attention in the light of awareness, whatever needs to be re-acknowledged, that needs to be attended to, that needs care, will present itself. I've noticed just this week with several people how in the moments that what was there really shown itself, the sadness, the feeling of rejection, the feeling of having lived for so many decades believing stories of something's wrong, I'm unlovable, that there were moments when that suffering became really, really clear of a kind of freedom like, oh yeah, that I am suffering. There is an immediate tenderizing when we register, truly register, that we're suffering. Kind of, I sense it kind of like um, feeling what's going on and having that inner sense of, ouch, you know, this hurts. It's that simple. It's like really getting it that we're hurting. If we do, and then we say, well, you know, how do we want to relate to this? We want to be caring. If I said to somebody, you know, well, what does that hurt, scared place want? It wants care. We move towards that that tenderness, when we can recognize suffering. I remember one story of uh, one woman who had just horrendous ups and downs in one retreat, where she just went, you know, just was going in and out of all the the dark, deep, difficult places. And um, at the end of the retreat, her report was, well, the joy is in just getting real. That there is a joy, and a joy doesn't mean happy, happy. A joy means a sense of really coming home into a wholeness, where we sense we're really including what's here. Even when what we're coming home to is the realization of having spent so many days and months and years gripped by a sense that another another being would not really like us coming home and really being able to be with the pain of that has its own freedom. In the moments that we're no longer ignoring or fixing or in some way pushing away the woundedness and the pain that's here, in those moments we shift our relationship with suffering. In those moments, rather than being 
the small self that is absolutely organized around avoiding and controlling. We enlarge to become the awareness that can regard what's there tenderly. Rumi writes, don't turn away. Keep your gaze on the bandage place. That's where the light enters you. So this aspiration of the bodhisattva, may these circumstances serve to awaken, has that courageous heart that's willing to lean in and be with what's here, because there's a trust in the power of heart and awareness that we can awaken in the midst of anything. Let me invite you just to reflect a bit on this aspiration and take it in and see how it sits for you. You might begin by sensing in your life right now what's challenging. What are the difficult circumstances? We all have something that's in some way um, that we would wish away or that we are having a hard time with or concerned about. Sometimes it's for someone else, on, for someone on someone else's behalf. But to sense what circumstances right now are difficult that might bring up fear or grief or anger or confusion. And just for a moment, reflect on how you're relating to this. Without any judgment, just reflect. Do you ignore it? Do you wish it away? Are you habitually trying to fix things? Is there some blaming of yourself or others? Judgment? Is there a story of self that you lock into, of a self that's overwhelmed, kind of pitiful self, an oppressed self, a powerless self? Is there a story that you've kind of taken on as your clothing, your, your outfit, in regard to this circumstance? How is it in your body when you consider these difficult circumstances? And then just to explore this aspiration, may these circumstances awaken this heart and mind. May they allow me to touch my natural wisdom and compassion. Just to sense that as a prayer. It can be a contemplation or inquiry, how might these circumstances awaken this being? But just to notice how your relationship to the experience might shift. 
when there's a sincere prayer that it serves freedom, awakening. These very circumstances, which include aging, sickness, death, loss, Okay, come on back. It's said that the ground of Buddhism is compassion and the ground of compassion is compassion towards ourselves. That we begin, as with Relka circles, we begin with the life that's right here. And if we can begin to really face willingly with that kind of heart and courage, really what's happening then we bring that quality of openness and tenderness, the circles widen, and our aspiration quite naturally is, may this life be of benefit. We just care. We care because there's a sense of an identity that's no longer centralized as a self. There's a sense of beingness that includes others. May this life be of benefit. So how do we be of benefit? really begins with offering our attention in the same way we offer it inwardly, offering it to each other, to our earth, to our world. Our attention is the most basic expression of love. When we pay attention, that is our expression of love. Ramdas's book, How Can I Help?, the story that I enjoyed One man wrote, he says, there's a group hiking and then they're sitting at the top of the mountain and and he's also there. He's not part of the group, but he's sitting nearby, kind of blissful. And he says, a stranger suddenly appeared next to me, sat down and immediately started to describe this problem he was going through. (laughs) By the time I'd pulled myself out of the higher realms, he'd already detailed the whole drama, the cast of characters and the decisions he was facing. I hadn't gotten a bit of it. (laughs) Nothing. Nobody. Moreover, it was much too late to ask him to run it all down once more because he would have felt justifiably pretty uncomfortable. So there I was, intimate confidant to a deep problem without the slightest idea of who was who and who had done what to whom. My first reaction was to laugh hysterically. It was one of those great human condition moments. But this guy was obviously in distress and looking for a kindly pair of ears, so I picked up as best as I could. To my continued amazement, none of the details became any clearer as we walked down the mountain. I kept hoping I'd find out who she really was and what he had actually done. No such luck. And I wasn't about to ask a question that would reveal my total ignorance, make him feel terrible, or lead me to hysterical laughter. So we just quietly walked on down. And from time to time, I would punctuate the conversation with what seemed like appropriate remarks. That must have been hard. What did you feel then? Oh, yes, I've been through that one before. Boy, things sure do get confused in life. (laughs) Great insights like that. (laughs) And he would not appreciatively continue, and I'd contain my sense of this wonderful human absurdity. Meanwhile, I was growing increasingly fond of this guy and feeling great empathy for his problem, whatever it was. (laughs) When we reached the bottom of the hill, he stopped for a moment and then suddenly embraced me. I just want you to know how incredibly helpful you've been. (laughs) You're one of the most understanding, compassionate people I've ever met. Do you think we could have another conversation like this again? (laughs) I was dumbfounded. It was one of the great moments in my life. Sure, I said, I'd love to. 
And he walked off to join some other people, a number of whom kept coming up to me during the day saying, what did you tell Eddie? He's just so grateful to you. He says you're wonderful. (laughs) Our attention often isn't perfect, and we do miss things. But there is the truth that when we're sincere and pay attention, what happens is we grow to care, the very nature of that. I was um, thinking about how everybody loves their pet so much, and their particular dog or cat is such a special creature with all its little personality attributes and so on. And we don't love each other's pets quite as much as we love our own. And it's because we've been paying such deep attention to the particularities of this particular living being. And it's true wherever we pay attention. One story I love is of a uh, Hasidic master, and he, at his funeral, one of the disciples that was new asked another, well, what was it that most mattered to the master? And the response was, whoever he was with in the moment. When we look closely, no matter how much we feel judgment or hate or distance, if we really, really pay attention, we come to care. I heard a couple of years ago about the, um, there's that project to save gorillas, and one of the findings scientifically they found is that uh, that monkeys can remember early life experiences. And so in this California laboratory, one of the chimps' name was Mike, and um, it and the, his life history was that he was orphaned and his mother was butchered when he was young. And the scientists um, taught him sign language. And in this article, it was just so amazing to hear how they taught this, they taught Mike sign language, and he was able to describe to them how he felt when his mom was butchered. And, and it's, the relationship became so deep, and they could pay attention and really sense the truth of this being, the subjectiveness. We don't catch that so often, because we live in our story about what's going on for the other person. On the bodhisattva path and this training, and it really is a training to pay attention, compassion is not abstract. It can't be. It's very, very much with the arising, the preciousness of the life that's right here. John Tarrant described it this way. He says, the selfish emotions give us pain. They thicken us, constrict the breathing. But our feeling for others is weightless and old. We recognize the other, our original links to all life. Hearing the news that we have the same last names as the blowing grass, the glowworms in the cave made by the roots of the upturned tree, and the galaxies living and dying in their vast cycles, compassion rises like the evening breeze, a natural feature of our inner seasons. Compassion carries a sense of objectivity, but its nature is to be highly particular. In this way, it carries our spiritual recognition into the soul's domain of love that has a body. We feel for this child 
with a running nose whose black hair falls into her eyes when she somersaults for this cliffside where the snow gums bleed red sap on their white trunks and wombats have burrowed dim palaces in the broken rock. And the more particular it becomes, the less remote, and the more it moves into love. Actually, let me just say, there's something at the beginning of that that I think is important, which is, passion carries a sense of objectivity, but its nature is to be highly particular. I say that because while it's highly particular, we feel, we hear a story about a chimp and really can feel the care for that creature, that being. There's also a quality of wisdom that's not sentimental. And I'd like to just take a moment because there's a way in which compassion can, that is almost the shadow side, can have that attachment if we don't see clearly. And the bodhisattva path is to see what's true in the moment and embrace that with care. Compassion comes from and is, is informed by real understanding. And when we have real understanding of how it is, then there's a magic and a power to it. Otherwise, it's immature. It's okay, but it's immature. That's why when we practice in uh, Theravadan Buddhism, the Brahma Vihara is called the divine abodes, to cultivate these qualities of heart, of love, of joy, of compassion, we, qual- we also cultivate equanimity, which is that wisdom that recognizes this life is coming and going and doesn't belong to any solid entity. When we pay deep attention, we see how it's passing away. It comes, it goes. We realize that these bodies, these personalities, the beings that we love are temporary, are not enduring selves. And we also realize that loss is natural. Grief is natural, but so is loss. It's not something wrong. When we can really see the seasons as they pass, and the moments as they pass, and these lives as they pass, when we can see the deaths and recognize that naturalness, we relax the grip. And then our love becomes quite full. Because as long as we're holding on and trying to make life stay and be a certain way, our heart's contracted, and we're not realizing the fullness of awareness. Now, some people, there's a swinging we can go that goes into, well, it's all impermanent, it's all empty, it's really no, there's no self in there. And it can turn to what's called nihilism, which is, well, nothing really matters. I mean... Why be compassionate if it's all just this coming-going world, these magical appearances? And built into that is a subtle aversion, is a fear that it's scary to sense the groundlessness of it all. There really is no self here, and yet absolutely love the preciousness of this life that appears and goes, this fleeting life. Japanese poet Isa. This world of dew is only a world of dew, and yet this world of dew is only a world of dew, and yet Mary Oliver 
describes how we can be with this passing world with all the bravery and integrity and beauty of our beings. She says, every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this, the fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To love what is mortal, to love each expression of this fleeting life, the mysterious web of life, the beings, the animals, the trees, the sounds, to really love what arises and to let go. The Tibetans describe this as emptiness suffused with compassion. So this is really our practice here, moment by moment, to fully touch what we experience, to really live the moments and yet with an open hand to let them come and let them go, to let them be released into awareness and tenderness. Now what happens is because they feel so personal, when the arising moment is one of fear, when the arising moment is one where we hear that message again, something's wrong with me and there's that grip, it helps to feel the poignancy of that, to feel the insecurity or the loneliness or fear, and to remember how many others suffer in the same way. We widen the circles. It becomes less personal. It's a beautiful reflection. If you sit in here and you let yourself open fully to what's happening and also know it's guaranteed there are going to be others that their bodies and hearts and minds have similar contractions, we begin to sense this really as how life lives through us, the conditioning. Poet Adrian Rich says this, The problem, unstated until now, is how to live in a damaged body in a world where pain is meant to be gagged, uncured, ungrieved over. The problem is to connect without hysteria the pain of anyone's body with the pain of the world's body. The reason that I um, find the practice of Tonglen, the compassion practice uh, that the Tibetans teach, to be um, so valuable is just that. It's absolutely courageous in that invitation to touch just what's here, not pulling away. Really touch it. And yet it's absolutely recognizing that this is not mine. It belongs to awareness. 
So we breathe in and really touch what's here. But we breathe out and really offer it into the awakened heart-mind. Now as we do, as we begin to sense this, this courage to be with what's here and the sense that it's really held, it's really held in that refuge of loving awareness, we naturally, whoever we encounter, have the same courage to meet what's there. We can sense others' pain, and we can receive it with that same tenderness, and we can respond. So in this second part of the Bodhisattva's aspiration, may this life be a benefit. There's a commitment to showing up and being available to feel, to breathe in for others their pain, and to respond with care. And our response can be, in so many ways, creative. It could be a response of a smile or a prayer. It can be that bundle of wildflowers. It can be a reassurance, just a little reassurance of, I see you and I care. It can be material, it can be energy, it can be time. story for you that um, just the power of giving a little bit in that way to another and how it changes lives. One day when I was a freshman in high school, I saw a kid from my class walking home from school. His name was Kyle and he looked like he was carrying all of his books. I thought to myself, why would anyone bring home all his books on a Friday? He must really be a nerd. I had quite a weekend planned, parties, a football game. So I shrugged my shoulders and went on, but as I was walking, I saw a bunch of kids running toward him. They ran at him, knocking all his books out of his arms and tripping him, so he landed in the dirt. His glasses went flying, and I saw them land in the grass about ten feet from him. He looked up, and I saw this terrible sadness in his eyes. My heart went out to him. So I jogged over to him, and as he crawled around, looking for his glasses, I saw a tear in his eye. As I handed him his glasses, I said, Look, those guys are jerks. They should really get a life. He looked at me and said, Hey, thanks. And there was a big smile on his face. It was one of those smiles that showed real gratitude. I helped him pick up his books and asked him where he lived. As it turned out, he lived near me, so I asked him why I had never seen him before. He said he had gone to private schools before then. I would have never hung out with a private school kid before, But we talked all the way home, and I carried some of his books, and he turned out to be pretty cool. I asked him if he wanted to play a little football with my friends, and he said yes. We hung out all weekend, and the more I got to know Kyle, the more I liked him, and my friends thought the same of him. Monday morning came, and there was Kyle with his huge stack of books again. I stopped him and said, boy, you're really going to build some serious muscles with that pile of books every day. He just laughed and handed me half the books. Over the next four years, Kyle and I became best friends. When we were seniors, we began to think about college. Kyle decided on Georgetown and I was going to Duke. I knew that we would always be friends, that the miles would never be a problem. He was going to be a doctor and I was going for a business, for business on a football scholarship. Kyle was valedictorian of our class. I teased him all the time about being a nerd. He had to prepare a speech for graduation. I was so glad it wasn't me having to get up there and speak. Graduation day, I saw Kyle. He looked great. He was one of those guys that had really found himself during high school. He filled out out and actually looked good in glasses. He had more dates than I had, and all the girls loved him. Sometimes I was jealous. Today was one of those days. I could see that he was nervous about his speech, so I smacked him on the back and said, 
Hey, big guy, you'll be great. He looked at me with one of those looks, the really grateful one, and smiled. Thanks. As he began his speech, he cleared his throat and said, Graduation is a time to thank those who helped you make it through those tough years. Your parents, your teachers, your siblings, maybe a coach, but mostly your friends. I'm here to tell all of you that being a friend to someone is the best gift you can give them. I'm going to tell you a story. I looked at my friend with disbelief as he told the story of the first day we met. He had planned to kill himself over the weekend. He talked about how he had cleaned out his locker so that his mom wouldn't have to do it later and was carrying his stuff home. He looked hard at me and gave me a little smile. Thankfully, I was saved. My friend saved me from doing the unspeakable. I heard the gasp that went through the crowd as this handsome, popular boy told us all about his weakest moment. I saw his mom and dad looking at me and smiling that same grateful smile. Not until that moment did I realize its depth. Never underestimate the power of your actions. With one small gesture, you can change a person's life. We are all in each other's lives to impact one another in some way, looking for the goodness, seeing the vulnerability. We discover our lives are inextricably linked. We can hear a story like that and sense sometimes that, well, you know, that's major drama. Not everybody we meet is about to to kill themselves. But the truth is everybody that we meet at some point and often faces the reality that this life is insecure and the truth of how much loss there is and that most people do struggle with a sense of being afraid that they're not lovable. Many do, many of us, and if not all the time, at times. Most of us really want to be seen and want to be loved. I love this Havis. He says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not do this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this. This great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye? The one that is always saying, with that sweet moon language, what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye? that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. So this is really our um, suppressious training, this training of paying attention to the life that's inside us, paying attention in a deep enough way that we really can change our relationship with our inner life, shifting from the self that's trying to make it okay to that awareness that really can tenderly hold. And then to bring our attention to each other and really look and really see the vulnerability that is in everyone we meet and that beauty, that goodness. 
Rachel Remen writes that one moment of unconditional love may call into question a lifetime of feeling unworthy and invalidate it. One moment of unconditional love. We can offer that to ourselves, to each other. So the Bodhisattva's vows to meet whatever circumstances arise with that wish, may this serve wisdom, compassion, and that vow to work for the liberation of all beings. It can sound so grandiose. And if we think that it's a self that's taking on this path, if we think it's a self that's trying to serve the liberation of all beings, it's back-breaking and overwhelming and insane. It doesn't work. What makes these vows possible and powerful and beautiful is that as we discover our nature, the awareness and love that's here, the very ground of compassion that's here, we naturally have room for others. We're no longer identified with the smallness of self. We are that field of caring. To be a bodhisattva is not to take on another role not a story. It's really the natural expression of our being as we wake up. So let's just take a few moments to sit together. Closing with the words of Hafiz, it happens all the time in heaven, and someday it will begin to happen again on earth, that men and women who are married, those who are lovers, parents, friends who give each other light, often will get down on their knees, and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand, with tears in their eyes, will sincerely speak, saying, My dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? It happens all the time in heaven, and someday it will begin to happen again on earth.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.